Hello, humans of the world. It's me, Ellie Krug. Ellie Krug, and there's nothing pre-recorded about this show. It is absolutely live here on July 23. And you have me in the station looking at my producer, Dan, looking at a screen, looking at a camera. And I am just here for you. And so I would love to hear from you because I want to hear from humans. 952 946 6205. We have, we have a great show. I'm going to talk um, about some good in the world. <laughs> it's still happening, and I want to remind you about that. Then I'm going to also talk about some stuff that's not so good, particularly as it relates to transgender people, my community. And of course, I will talk about my work as an idealist. But let us begin with this week's featured idealist, someone whom I was aware of. Uh, totally and completely unaware of until I saw a recent story and photo of Nancy Pelosi standing in Statuary Hall in the U.S. Capitol. She was commemorating the statue of Mary McLeod Bethune, a black woman who did so very much and whose statue is that of the first black American in Statuary Hall. And in fact, her statue replaced that of a Confederate general – Edmund Kirby Smith, who was among the last to surrender after the end of the Civil War in 1865. And um, his statue was removed in 2021, and, and uh, Speaker Pelosi uh, called it uh, trading a traitor for a civil rights hero. So who, you know, <laughs> once again, I mean, both in high school, okay, and college, uh, not that co-college wasn't a great school, but in high school, in college, and law school, once again, I failed to learn about this, about an important American, okay? Because literally until this week, I'm sorry, I did not know Mary McLeod Bethune. I didn't know her name. I didn't know that she existed. I didn't know her story. And I'm going to guess many of you listening right now have no idea who she was. Um, well, let me tell you about this incredible idealist. Um, and uh, why she absolutely deserves not only a place in statue, uh, statue and honor in statuary, statuary Hall, but deserves every possible accolade we can give to heroes. To begin, Mary McLeod Bethune was born in a log cabin, yep, in Maysville, South Carolina in 1875 to parents who were formerly enslaved. Mary was the 15th of 17 children, and most of her older siblings had been enslaved themselves. And at a young age, a white child chided Mary that she shouldn't be looking at books because she didn't know how to read. And that chiding stuck with Mary. Um, And she came to understand that the only difference between white humans and humans of color was the ability to read and write. This enlightenment would go on to fuel not only Mary's personal education, but her dedication to educate and promote black Americans for the rest of her life. Truthfully, there isn't uh, nearly enough time in this show to talk about all that Mary McLeod Bethune accomplished, but let me list a few things. First, she got the education she desired, and then after marrying, she and her husband, August, moved to Dayton, Florida excuse me, Daytona, Florida, where Mary became determined to start a school for girls. So in 1904, now, (laughs) you know, the height of Jim Crow, 1904, okay? 
Um, Mary rented a small house in Daytona, Florida uh, for $11 a month, and she started school where she made benches and desks from discarded packing crates. She used $1.50 to start the, quote, educational and industrial training school for Negro girls, unquote. She started with five girls aged 6 to 12 and one boy, her son. Within a year, uh, Bethune was te- Mary was teaching 30 girls at the school. This in and of itself would be remarkable, but Mary McLeod Bethune was very astute and strategic. She knew that in order for her school to sustain itself in the segregated South, she needed the help of white men and women. Thus, she courted white women organ- organizations like the Ladies Palmetto Club for donations. And even better, even smarter, she has powerful white men to sit on her school board of trustees. And in short order, she had, she had such names as James Gamble of Procter & Gamble, um, uh, um, Eli Olds of uh, uh, Oldsmobile and the REO Motor Company, and Thomas White of the White Sewing Machines Company on the board. She had these power people on her board. This is a black woman, okay, asking powerful white men to be on the board of her school. She was also she also traveled the country looking for funding. And that led her to getting a $62,000 grant from John D. Rockefeller. Now that was 62,000 in the 30s, 1930s. So think of what that would be today. I I sorry, I haven't done the math. One of the things that struck me about Mary's school building work was that she'd open the school on Sundays to tourists and others. So, you know, you had people going to, Flor- going to Florida even in the 20s and the 30s, okay? But she'd open the school on Sundays to tourists and others where the students would share about their work. They'd sing, they'd recite poetry, stuff of that nature. And the space where people would come to watch all of this was non-segregated. It was the only place in Day- Daytona where whites and blacks would be able to sit together. It may have been the only place in Florida, for that matter. Moreover, there's a story of a white man with a rifle once threatening the school. Incredibly, our idealist, Mary, this is a woman that thought outside the box in many ways. Incredibly, she befriended that man with the rifle. And, they, and he soon became a supporter of the school. He went on to say, quote, if anyone bothers old Mary, I will protect her with my life, unquote. Think about that. She turned people. She made people see the world differently. Eventually, Mary's school would merge with another uh, Daytona, Florida school for black boys and become the, the Bethune-Cookman University. Uh, and and that it still exists, and it's one of the historically black colleges and universities in the South right now. So that school exists. Now, along the way, okay, Mary McLeod Bethune also built a hospital because one of her one of her students, a, a black girl, developed appendicitis. The white hospital at first refused to treat her. Uh, Mary uh, convinced them to take her in. Um, but then they put her back, this poor child, they put her on the back porch, gave her substandard care. And Mary said, well, I'm going to create a hospital that will serve black people. And she went and did that. She did. 
Uh, but there, but the Mary McLeod Bethune story is much more than building about building a university and a hospital. When the Nineteenth Amendment became law, that you may recall gave women the right to vote. Um, Mary began registering black women voters. Of course, it was incredibly difficult for black people to vote in the South, um, and Mary helped uh, pay the poll taxes that were extracted of of uh, black people, and uh, she helped them pass literacy tests. Uh, that garnered her the uh, ire of the KKK, um, but she still did the work. Eventually, Mary was elected president of the National Association of Colored Women in 1924, and she professionalized the organization by hiring a paid executive director and buying a property in Washington, D.C., where it became the first black-controlled organization with a headquarters in D.C. Now, this is a woman who worked who worked it, okay, but had a vision. She was a visionary at the very same time. And Mary's work with the National Association of Colored Women and leadership with other organizations gained her some political clout because she could deliver some votes. And among the political leaders that she met and befriended was Eleanor Roosevelt, who would later say that Mary was, quote, her closest friend in her age group, unquote. This led Mary to forming the Federal Council of Negro Affairs, also known as the Black Cabinet which served as an advisory board to the Roosevelt administration on issues facing African-Americans. The black cabinet um, consisted of black people, mainly men, who had been appointed to positions in federal agencies. And it was the first collective ever of black people working in higher positions in government. So she was a convener, collaborator. She was a former. She was a builder. Lastly, Mary McLeod Bethune <clears> – um, hold on a second. I've got to check my note. Lastly, uh, her energy was also directed at becoming self-sufficient. She invested in several businesses, including a black newspaper. She also founded a life insurance company. And because Florida segregation laws prevented <clears> – excuse me – people of color from visiting beaches, you know, Daytona, Daytona Beach, okay – because Florida law said black people can't go to the beaches. Mary and others bought a two-mile stretch of beachfront property, opening the beach to black persons and also allowing white people to use it as well because she understood the power of reaching across. Um, lastly, um, and I think I might have said that, Mary McLeod Bethune helped found the United Negro College Fund with two other people now. That fund still exists. I remember as a young kid seeing the commercials for it on TV. It still exists. They're still making commercials. And the United Negro College Fund gives scholarships, mentorships, and job opportunities to students of color at the 37 historically black uh, colleges and universities in America. Um, Mary Methune, McCl- excuse me, Mary McLeod Bethune has been repeatedly honored with accolades befitting the most important Americans. For example, in 1989, Ebony Magazine listed her as one of the 50 most important figures in black American history. In 1985, the Postal Service issued a stamp in her honor. And the National Park Service has acquired her last residence in Washington, D.C., and designated as a historical site. When she passed in 1955 at the age of 79, she passed the year after the Supreme Court declared 
Brown versus Board of Education. So, um, so she was able to see that, okay? She was able to see the Supreme Court. <laughs> Remember the Supreme Court used to do good things? She remembered the Supreme – she was able to see the Supreme Court put a nail in the heart of Jim Crow with Brown. And in her last will and testament, this is what Mary wrote. Quote, I leave you to love. I leave you to hope. I leave you the challenge of developing confidence in one another. I leave you a thirst for education. I leave you a respect for the use of power. I leave your faith. I leave you racial dignity. I leave you a desire to live harmoniously with your fellow men. I leave you a responsibility to our young people. <laughs> that last one. A responsibility to our young people. As I said, there is much more to this idealist than I have time for. But what strikes me most about Mary McLeod Bethune was her persistence and willingness to reach across divisions to make the world better for black people and actually for everyone. She certainly has my greatest admiration. Check her out. All you got to do is Google Mary McLeod Bethune, B-E-T-H-U-N-E. And uh, just it's worth spending 15 or 20 minutes learning about this incredible historical American idealist. Okay. All right. Well, that gets us for that. Um, when we come back, I'm, I've got things to talk to you about. I want to tell you some good news about good human. Hey, email me. Or no, no, don't email me. Call me at 952-946-6205. I'd love to hear from you. Take care. I'll be back in a second. You're listening to me, Ellie Krupp. Radio on AM 950. You're hearing me live, 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 live on Saturday, the 23rd. Um, And I am thrilled to be here. I'm going to give you one more pitch. Uh, Well, probably not one more, probably more than that. Uh, But give me a call, 952-946-6205. I'd love to hear from you. I really would. And if you'd ever heard of Mary McLeod Bethune, um, I'd love to know if you did and uh, how you learned about her. Okay. Now, you know... Right. There are if you've been listening to this show regularly, you know that there are things that I say over and over again um, simply because they're important. Yeah. And well, part of it is also, you know, I'm old and I don't remember. No, no, that's not true. I say things over and over again because it is important to stress certain things. And one of the things that I do say a lot and I will continue to say it a lot is that I believe the vast majority, like 98% of all humans, have good hearts. I do. 2% total sociopath. The other 98% good, good humans. They are. Just that we often don't see our hearts show up, the good hearts of other people show up, because one, we're afraid. 
You know, we're afraid of a lot of things. We're afraid of people who are different or other compared to us. And that's something I experience. And I've got stuff I'll talk about later in the show about that. But Or we're not paying attention to exercise our good empathetic hearts. But you know what? When we are given a pathway on how to exercise our empathetic hearts, okay, when we're given a pathway on how to do it, we humans show up in droves. We do. Now, put a pin in that about pathway, and I'll come back to it in a second. What I want to talk to you about is how the goodness of one human has begot the goodness of a whole lot of humans. And so uh, on my feed, you know, you remember I'm a Twitter junkie. Um, On my feed this week came across a story of an Indiana pizza man. His name is Nick Bostic, B-O-S-T-I-C. Indiana pizza man who saved five people, four children and an 18-year-old from a burning house. You know, he was driving... (laughs) He was driving around in Lafayette, Indiana, delivering pizza around midnight, um, at 1230 to be exact, on July 11th. And as he was delivering the pizza, he saw this house on fire. And um, he stopped, of course, ran to the house and yelled, yelled, is anybody here? Anybody here? And at first he didn't think anybody was in the house, but then suddenly um, – Suddenly, uh, three children and an 18-year-old, okay, appear, and he ushers them out of the house. And he asks, though, is there anybody else here? Is there anyone else here? And they say, no, there's one. There's still one kid in the house, a six-year-old child. And so what does Nick Bostic do? He goes back, in, he goes back into the house. Now, I've got to tell you if, you, if you go and Google this story and get the video, because that's how I – found it on Twitter. You get the video. What what you see on the video, now you have to understand this. You see on the video, you see the fire truck. You hear it coming up. You see it coming up. You see the fire, you know, uh, uh, um, fire uh, work, you know, the, the fireman, okay, for lack of a better phrase, okay, getting out of the truck. I mean, this house is engulfed, engulfed. And, and then somebody says there's somebody in there. Somebody says somebody he went he went back in, and and it, it's it, if you look at this video you're like, are you kidding me? He went back into that burning house and he did. Nick Bostic did. He went back in, and he started screaming for the six year old. Okay, and at first he hears nothing. Then finally he on the second floor he finds the six year old in a corner, and he <laughs> grabs the six year old. Bust out a window on the second floor, okay, and comes out of the house with the six-year-old, saving that child as well. Amazing, okay? Amazing. Nick Bostic, I don't think he's more than 22 or 23 years old. I don't have his age, okay? Sorry about that. I should have that. Um, But, I mean, pizza delivery guy, all right? And so, but he suffers burns. Um, He's certainly a hero, but he's in the hospital for several days. And his cousin, Richard, decides, okay, well, we, 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 you know, we we don't have the money for all these medical bills. And he sets up a GoFundMe page to, to, to help Nick Bostic, his cousin, out, help him out with medical bills. Now, (laughs) you've got to understand, okay? Now, remember, let's take that pin out of that thing. When humans are presented with a, 
with a pathway on how to exercise their empathetic hearts. When they're given a pathway, okay, and by the way, GoFundMe and other online mechanisms are pathways on how to exercise our empathetic hearts, okay? When humans get a pathway, we show up in droves. We do. And so do you want to know, I mean, it's not even been a week, okay? Um, no, hold on. I take that back. It's been a little bit more than a week, okay? It was July 11th. Today's the 23rd, so we're talking 12 days, okay? Not been two weeks, all right? Where, how much do you want to guess? Let, just yell it out right now as you're listening to me. How much do you th- want to guess that in 12 days has been raised for Nick Bostic for his medical bills? Through GoFundMe, what do you, what do you guess? Hundred thousand, maybe one hundred and fifty, maybe two hundred thousand. Yeah, I just checked right before the show started. Okay, and by the way, you can do this. All you have to do is Google GoFundMe Pizza Delivery Man. That's all you have to do. Okay, um, right before this show, a total of five hundred forty-nine thousand. $732 have been raised for Nick Bostic through GoFundMe. 17,000 people donated. One woman donated $13,000 to help Nick Bostic. Incredible. Why? Why did they do that? Because we have good, empathetic hearts, humans. We do, listeners. I mean, I... In this time right now where we have all of this division, in this time right now where we yell at each other, in this time right now where people are searching for hope, where people are, are, are feeling as if it's all falling apart, please, can I urge you to remember that the vast, 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 vast majority of us have good, empathetic hearts. We do. We just need to focus on that and on the fact that we do care for each other. We do. Notwithstanding a vocal minority that makes it appear, and I'm talking like minority, minority, it's just a small group of people that makes it appear that we don't care for each other. So, Nick Bostic, Indiana pizza delivery guy, saves five people. And in return, us, Americans, humans, in return, we support him. Isn't that the way it's supposed to work? Huh? Okay. Well, I wanted to give you that. <laughs> that that's a lifter, isn't it? That makes that helps make things feel better, doesn't it? Okay, so let's um, uh, let's give you something that's not as good. All right, and that would be uh, this uh, poll uh, story by Natalie Jackson um, in. Uh, 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 oh my goodness! What uh, where did this come out of? Uh, this came out of uh, five two three, I believe. I'm sorry, I don't have the. Um, I don't. Natalie Jackson for sure. Okay, is is the author and and it's 
And it's a piece titled American Support for LGBTQ Rights Often Stops with Transgender Rights. It's a fascinating story. So just Google Natalie Jackson um, poll about LGBTQ rights versus transgender rights. And what what this what this shows, okay, is that uh, the Public Religion Research Institute, okay, Public Religion Research Institute, done some polling. And what they came to find is that um, eight eight in ten Americans, eight in ten, so eighty percent of Americans, support laws intended to protect LGBTQ people from discrimination in jobs, public accommodations, and housing. Okay. And that includes majorities of Republicans and white evangelicals, okay? So eight in 10 Americans want to support LGBTQ rights generally, okay? However, when you peel out from that, just the question of rights for transgender people, everything changes. And so for those people, even though the majority of people support laws protecting lesbian, gay, and bisexual people, Okay, as it relates to employment and and maybe transgender people as well in that. Okay, but when it comes to specific specific discrimination against transgender people, the numbers change. They change dramatically. For example, forty seven percent of Americans, according to the polling done by the Public Religion Research Institute, okay, forty seven percent of Americans favored bathroom bills that would require transgender people to use the bathroom of their sex assigned at birth, not their gender identity. Now, can you hold on a second? Let me just stop you with that. Uh, If you go on Facebook Live, you're looking at me right now. If you've ever seen me in public, notwithstanding this voice, I am, you know, I'm very, you know, I look like a woman, okay? Uh, By the way, I am a woman, but, you know, I look the part, all right? Now, can you imagine me? being required to go into a men's restroom? Can you imagine that? By the way, I like men a whole lot. Okay, I mean, are there women that want their men in a restroom with me? I don't know. Okay, but but that that's the silliness that we get when we have those laws. But you've got 47% of those who are polled believing that I, I should be using the men's restroom, that there should be laws causing me to use the men's restroom. On top of that, it gets worse, though. Uh, 61% of the poll respondents said that they believe that transgender girls, they would support laws uh, prohibiting transgender girls from participating in sports. Okay? 52% um, would support laws uh, preventing transgender boys from participating in high school sports. Why is that? Why is there all of this support for LGBTQ rights? Okay? But then when it gets down to the specific question of transgender people, everything seems to change. Well, one of the theories is it's the difference between gender and sexuality. That people seem to accept the idea that, you know, sexuality, apparently, um, sexuality is something that, you know, you can't, don't have a choice about and, you know, I'm going to be supportive. But when it comes to gender, people appear, my, you know, appear to think that it's a choice. You know, and you don't have to be the way that you are. I mean, certainly I heard a lot of that when I transitioned um, back in uh, 2009, 2010, 2011. And so, you know, but this is a problem. And of course, I have no doubt fueling this is, you know, you've got 
all of these laws, okay, all of these laws, I mean, I think we're up to 20 states now uh, that have passed laws prohibiting trans girls specifically um, from participating in sports from kindergarten all the way through university at graduation. I mean, and so you, you've got – you've already got the public kind of conditioned to the idea that transgender people are lesser and, you know, when, when you're considered lesser in society, it's a whole lot easier to just continue to pile it on, a whole lot easier. You know, I mean, let's go back and think about Jim Crow South or Jim Crow North. Think about that. So um, me as an idealist, me as somebody working to make the world a better place, but particularly about trying to protect trans, transgender youth and non-binary youth and kids as well as lesbian, gay, and bisexual kids as well as all kids, okay? I mean, I, I want to protect all kids. But, you know, this kind of stuff just incenses me. It does. And it shows me how much more work still needs to be done, you know. And, uh, I mean, don't worry about me. I'm going to be persistent, okay. I'm going to keep going. But, boy, it's daunting. All right. Well, listen, we're going to take a break. We come back. I'm going to talk a little bit more about stuff that around challenges. Okay, and uh, and we'll be back in a sec. Thanks. And we're back. LA 2.0 Radio on AM 950. Um, I'm talking to you from the bunker. I usually say that. Um, okay. Uh, I did in the break make sure I figured this out. Natalie Jackson, she, uh, she wrote this piece in 538.com. And Natalie Jackson happens to be the Public Religion Research Institute Research Director. I also saw on the break um, that this piece that I just told you about was being criticized online. Um, because it's being viewed as an attempt to turn Democrats against transgender people, okay, as a way because, of, you know, the polling shows that the majority, you know, you got so many people that are against trans people that maybe the Democrats shouldn't be so so favorable, so supportive, so much of allies of trans people. You know what? I think that's bunk because I, I think Democrats do things. I, I don't – I'm not worried about that, Okay. I'm not worried about that because it's a pretty clear line. You know, transgender people are being marginalized across the U.S. And, and I'm going to give you another piece to help you understand that, okay? So I, I, I picked up this piece uh, from Time magazine online. Uh, it's written by Madeline Carlisle, uh, dated July 14th. It's titled, quote, As Texas Targets Trans Youth of Family Leaves in Search of a Better Future. And it follows a family that was in Austin, Texas. Now, listen, Austin, okay? Hey, I mean, you're talking probably the most liberal place in Texas, right? Um, Austin, Texas, where this family lived, and they have, a, they have an 11-year-old transgender girl. So this is somebody identified as male at birth who has now said, Mom, I'm not a boy, I'm a girl, and whose family was supporting her, okay, loving her, Please do that. 
okay? It's so incredibly important. And who then in turn, okay, that um, family um, was getting gender-affirming care from a Texas, you know, medical provider. And that was until, right, that was until earlier this year, uh, Governor Abbott and then uh, his attorney general, I think the attorney general came out first, and then Abbott jumped on the bandwagon saying that they believed that gender-affirming care was the equivalent of child abuse, and that doctors uh, uh, doctors needed to stop um, needed to stop providing gender affirming care, okay, and um, and that and that Paxton, the attorney general in Texas, said, "I'm directing I am directing the Department of Human Services, whatever Texas equivalent, to go and and start doing child abuse investigations of families that allowed their kids to get gender-affirming care. And by the way, gender-affirming care is the use of of, of hormone blockers, okay, and um, sometimes the use of hormones. It is not, except in very, 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 very rare cases, it's not about surgery. And no doctor, as, as you've heard me say before, no doctor will perform any bottom surgery on anyone. Uh, younger than 18 years old, okay? But this timepiece goes on to say that in 2021, GOP lawmakers in Texas and 20 other states introduced laws designed to ban doctors from providing gender-affirming medical care to minors. Arkansas enacted the first of such laws that April, April of last year. The next year, at least 15 other states introduced a total of 25 bills that would restrict access to gender-affirming care. In April of this year, Alabama enacted the most extreme anti-trans bill yet providing uh, that that if you provide a young person with gender affirming care you could be charged with a felony and this this time magazine piece follows this family with the parents named Karen and Chris and their transgender child and they have another kid um, follow follow their family in deciding that they're going to move from Austin Texas because of the environment down there to Portland Portland Oregon because in Oregon, you know, transgender people are protected and they can get the gender affirming care. Now, <clears throat> I want, will you think about this? You know, you, you have a happy life where you live. You've got all these friends and this network that you made. Now you have medical providers and all of that stuff. And then the state steps in and says, you as a parent, allowing your kid to transition <clears> – <throat> And get this kind of care. And by the way, what? <coughs> sorry, uh, what? But you're getting the proof here, okay? What? What puberty blockers do is it keeps transgender girls from getting this voice, right? And trust me, while I joke about this voice, it is a huge impediment. It is an impediment, certainly, to me finding a partner, because I do date men, and most men are scaredy cats. This voice scares the heck out of them. Um, maybe not for them to be with me for a little bit, but they're never going to invite me uh, to their home to meet their adult children or their elderly parents. All right? But this story, think that so the state acts and it causes people to have to uproot to protect their child and go to another state. This is unbelievable. But it's, this is America. This is happening in America. I just – it's 
And this is not only – I mean this is being replicated right now in four states. Four states ban gender-affirming care for transgender youth. That's from – you know as of this past legislative season, 2022, we'll see what happens in November. You can be certain, absolutely certain there will be more states, more laws this time next year. There could even be an attempt for a federal law. I would not be surprised. And once again, we have the government targeting a group of humans simply because who they are. If I think about it too much, my head will explode. This is why I live in Minnesota. Okay? This is why I'm here. Because in Minnesota, we'd be, I think, the last state where this would happen. Okay? All right, I've got to take another break. When I come back, I'm going to talk to you about my work as an idealist. Thanks. Ellie Krug on Ellie 2.0 Radio. I hope you've been enjoying this talking head show. Sorry, I didn't have an interview today. It's just a little difficult sometimes. Um, but uh, hopefully you've been finding this of value, um, you know. Um, okay. Time to talk about my stuff in my C-block. So uh, last week I talked to you about uh, the fact that last week I was in Salt Lake City. Uh, training 100-plus federal bankruptcy judges on human inclusivity. Using, I went and did my gray area thinking talk that people just like so much. And um, during that talk, um, because this conference, the, the, the bankruptcy judges, they meet twice a year. Um, so it's like every bankruptcy judge in the country, they meet like – Pretty much the East Coast meets one place, you know, judges on the Midwest and East Coast and judges in the Midwest and West Coast. They go and meet in, you know, one place or another um, during the year. So there are two conferences for bankruptcy judges. And then they're going to other – they go to other cities, you know, on a rotating basis. And I had heard when I was in Salt Lake City that coming up was uh, either next year or the year after that Florida where they were going to go. And in the course of me doing the training on gray area thinking, I happen to say, well, you understand that right now what I'm teaching you is illegal in Florida. I can't do this in Florida. And, you know, I got a couple of askance looks from the judges like, oh, really? And I said, yeah, really? And, and But later on I heard one judge said that that was BS, okay? Well, <laughs> it's not. You know, you remember that Disney spoke out against uh, the don't, don't Say Gay bill in Florida and then DeSantis uh, went and, uh, you know, revoked their special – he got the legislature to revoke their special municipal status or however it works. I don't know. But it was to, intended to punish Disney. Well, on top of that, they passed a law, what's being called the Stop Woke law, 
um, which is intended to prevent governmental entities as well as private businesses. So this is radical in the sense that it's not only about governmental entities, but it's also about private businesses because it gives people the right to object and, you know, I don't know if there's a bounty on it. There may be a bounty, but they have the right to go and file lawsuits like a private worker. It prevents private employers from talking about certain subjects, okay? And um, it includes this, okay, um, that it's against – now in Florida law, it's against the Florida law to, to teach that an individual's moral character or status – as privileged or oppressed is necessarily determined by his or her race, color, skin, or national origin. So in other words, you, in Florida, you can't talk about white privilege. And if you can't talk about white privilege, you know, by the way, what white privilege is, is just stuff. It just doesn't mean that white, white colored people haven't struggled. I mean, trust me, okay? It doesn't mean that you haven't struggled. It doesn't mean they haven't had a tough life. It just means that None of the challenges you've ever encountered have been because of your skin color. That's all that white privilege is, okay? All right? But you can't go and say that. You can't go even define it in Florida, all right? And then it goes on to say that it's also against the law to talk about virtues such as merit, excellence, hard work, fairness, neutrality, objectivity, and racial colorblindness as being racist or sexist or that they were created to oppress members of another race, color, sex, or national origin. So – so you can't – so if somebody says I'm colorblind, OK, I'm really colorblind and, you know, I, I see – you know, I don't see color, which frankly everyone sees color. Just trust me, OK? We do. We all group and label. Um, but if somebody says that, you can't like challenge it, OK? You can't like – well, hold on a second. Let's talk about that, OK? Or talk about the concept, well, you know, if you just pull up your bootstraps, you know, if you just work harder, person of color, you know, everything would be fine. So you can't talk about how the system is skewed, okay? That, I mean, let's just go look at the disparity in reading scores for third graders, fifth graders. I mean, the disparities are huge, 30, 40 percent different point, uh, difference points in, in reading test scores for uh, children of color versus white children, okay? I mean – you know, it's there, 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 there are there are things embedded in America where still the white skin color is preferred okay. over any other skin color, and I I'm sorry, but it is that way. Just think of the messaging. Yep, just think of the messaging that you have gotten since you were a kid, and how embedded that gets into everybody. Okay, well, listen, that's my cue. I guess I've got to go. Um, I want to be a, do a big thanks to my producer, Dan, uh, to you, my listeners. I want to thank you very much for um, being here. I'll see you next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.